We're in Hebrews 2 tonight. Jesus tasted death for everyone. We're going to read beginning in Hebrews 2, verse 5. So if you're able to stand with me, stand for the reading of God's word. Hebrews 2, 5, Jesus tasted death for everyone. And here's what the writer says. He did not subject to angels, Hebrews 2, 5, the world to come, concerning which we are speaking. But one has testified somewhere saying, Hebrews 2, 6, what is man that you remember him or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You've made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You've put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Skip down to verse 14. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death, he might render powerless him who held the power, who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who, li- who through fear of death were subject to slavery all of their lives. Father, what a powerful text. And I pray that as we divide it and we receive it, our ears would be open to what the Spirit would say to your people in this hour. Give us ears to hear. Help us to not only hear but act upon your word and to also bask in the beauty of it. May it reassure our hearts as well. And may you bless the time. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, Amen. You can have a seat. By God's grace, Jesus tasted death for everyone. G.K. Chesterton put it this way. He said, whatever is or is not true about men, this one thing is certain. Man is not what he was meant to be. When I originally preached this uh, sermon in Hebrews chapter 2, it was 2009, and I watched an interview. Barbara Walters was interviewing Patrick Swayze. Now, if you're as old as I am, there's a couple of uh, kind of staple movies that Patrick Swayze was in, and uh, there, are, there are movies that I've watched probably multiple times. One movie is the movie Ghost. How many of you have seen the movie Ghost? Okay. Now, the movie Ghost is certainly not theologically correct. Uh, after all, Patrick Swayze's living with his girlfriend and all of that stuff, and And basically, he's painted as a good guy, so he ends up going into the light, and the bad guys go into the darkness. And they're pulled into the darkness by some uh, Hollywood creation of these creatures that come up from the ground. And they grab people, and ah, people go into the abyss. And it's, uh, for its time, it was some some great cinematic uh, movie-making. But this interview that took place uh, was with a 56-year-old actor who was battling pancreatic cancer. And uh, I was a little surprised when I saw the interview, and I can't believe that it was 13-plus years ago now, but uh, he looked gaunt. Uh, If you know anything about Patrick Swayze, he was always fit. Uh, In one of the movies, Point Break, you know, he's a surfer, and, uh, you know, he's in dance movies, and he's, you know... A good-looking, I think he was on the cover of many magazines back in the day. 
And then you look at Patrick Swayze and you go, wow, what's going on? And you find out that he has pancreatic cancer. It's a terminal diagnosis. And so um, Barbara Walters begins to ask him about what's going on. And he says, you can bet that I'm going through hell. The 56-year-old actor said in his first interview on the subject, he said, I've only seen the beginning of it. There's a lot of fear here. There's a lot of stuff going on. Yeah, I'm scared and I'm angry. And I'm asking why me? The actor told the veteran interviewer, Barbara Walters, who, by the way, uh, just passed away in December of last year, as many of you know. And so um, she began to ask questions about the possibility of an afterlife to to actor Patrick Swayze, you know, in this interview. And he said these words, I don't know what's on the other side. It tests everything I believe in. And there is something unique in all of us that does does not die. He apparently believes in a soul. And he talked about the tangible fact of electrical energy in the interview. He went on to say, I like to believe I have a lot of guardian warriors, angels with me. I'm trying to be quiet and let them tell me what to do. When asked if he feared death, Swayze looked thoughtfully for a moment before answering no. But he added, I keep dreaming of a future, a future with a long, healthy life, not lived in the shadow of cancer, but in the light. The interview ended showing the scene from Ghost of him into the light he went. He said these famous words, they played the clip. It's amazing, Molly. The love on the inside, you take it with you. He said, it got me. It was a good line. That's all you can take with you. And I think it validated that one thing for all of us, that the only thing you can really take with you when you die is the love you have. Barbara Walters then said, "Uh, I'll be back to do an interview with you in a couple of years, right? Swayze replied, I'm up for that. I'll be there. Or maybe I won't. That was uh, an interview that took place, as I recollect, in January of 2009, and Swayze unfortunately passed away in September of that same year. Um, this is the dilemma, is it not, of mankind, the reality of death. Yesterday we opened up this uh, sanctuary to a family that had lost uh, a young lady named Jessica Swanson, and she passed away. Uh, I believe she was 37 years old. She served uh, as an L.A. sheriff She did a lot of amazing things. She was in the Special Victims Crime Unit. Uh, Really an amazing young lady. And she was also diagnosed with cancer and and, uh, was in remission. And then it came back with a fury and things quickly went downhill. And she passed away uh, just recently as well. And of course, this issue hits people inside the church, outside the church. It is one event for all. That's what the writer of Ecclesiastes said. This is one thing that you can take to the bank that we are mortal. And of course, we know the Bible teaches that one generation will not see physical death. And that will be at the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ when a group of people will be changed instantaneously from mortal to immortal. But that'll be one generation. We don't know if that were that generation or not. But save that generation and a few exceptions through biblical history. It's appointed unto a man once to die. This is in the same book of Hebrews, chapter 9, verse 27. And then comes the judgment. So the question with this particular topic 
is why did the writer bring it up in this book of Hebrews? Why is it that he is addressing this subject? Well, the reason is, is because this Hebrew church is basically going through a tough time. They haven't been persecuted to the point of death. We see this in Rome, or Hebrews chapter 12. But it's getting harder and harder to be a Christian in their world. In first century, most likely first century Rome, a group of Jewish Christians probably in a house church, and persecution has begun to rage. People are losing property. They're being, you know, uh, kicked out of different places and threatened. And the writer of Hebrews is being very pastoral, telling them basically to hold on through the tough times. So he says in verse five, he, God, did not subject to angels the world to come. The, the word subject is hupatasso in Greek. It's the common word for submission. It means, it's a military word that means to uh, line up in ranks. And the world to come, and verses one through four in chapter two, if you were with us last week, we talk about the, the danger of drifting. Many scholars see that as a parenthesis, verses one through four, chapter two, and the subject of angels is picked up from chapter 1, verse 14. If you take a look for a second, it says, And are they not all ministering spirits, that is angels, sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Then the parentheses in those first four verses, chapter 2. And then verse 5. He did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking. Why does the writer go to the subject of angels? And why is he talking about the rulership of the world to come? I think for this reason, to encourage them. Because as, a, as bad as it may get as a believer. Now, in the West, in America, we've, we've had a pretty privileged position. You know, we have had a nation largely saying that it was Christian or based upon Christian values. And it was, you know, you're pretty mainstream to be a Christian, but you all know that the numbers now are shifting the other way. Uh, the biblical worldview is losing ground. The moral beauty of the Bible is losing its place in our country. Someone told me the other day on TikTok, if you get on TikTok, you will see a good percentage of the content on TikTok attacking the traditional biblical worldview. So you guys need to know this as parents and grandparents that this is what much of the content is about. It's about undermining what the Bible teaches about life and about values. And so the writer is saying, look, the... the the rulership of the world to come, it being subject, uh, is not to angels concerning which we are speaking. Well, then the world to come, who is it subject to? We know that angels obviously have played a big role in both Old and New Testament. We can see battles between angels in Daniel chapter 10. We see the fallen angel of fallen angels, Lucifer himself tempting Jesus in Matthew 4 and Luke 4 and saying you can have the crown without the cross. I'll give you all the nations of the world if you bow down to me. We know there is spiritual warfare, Ephesians 6, between principalities and powers. And we know there are dark forces in spiritual places. So we would think that, well, maybe in the world to come, 
Some of the, the biggest rulers of all may be angels. And we know a few names. We know Michael and we know Gabriel. And we've learned a little bit about Lucifer. And so what are we to make of the world to come? Well, the writer is saying that the world to come is actually going to be ruled by Christ. But we are going to be what? Co-heirs with Christ. 1 Corinthians 6.2 says, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? 1 Corinthians 6.2 And if the world is judged by you, are you not competent in the smallest law courts or to constitute the smallest law courts? In Matthew 19, Jesus said these words, Truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration or renewal of all things, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, Matthew 19, 28, you also shall sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters, father or mother or children or farms for my namesake shall receive many times as much and shall inherit eternal life. 2 Timothy 2.12 says, we, If we endure, we shall reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. Revelation 1.6 says, He has made us to be a kingdom, priests, kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And then Revelation 2 says in verse 26, He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. Revelation 2.26, He shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces as I also have received authority from my Father. The future world will be ruled by the Son of God and those who have been faithful to the Son of God. Revelation 3.21 has it this way. He who overcomes, I will grant him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Revelation 5.10 says, Thou hast made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign upon the earth. Revelation 5 verse 10. All of these scriptures mean one thing, that the life to come is beyond what we could imagine. We are gonna rule and reign with Christ. And in light of the current circumstances of this little Jewish church teetering on the brink, tempted to drift away because of problems. Look, none of us want persecution. None of us want to be disliked. None of us want pain or difficulty. We would all prefer smooth sailing in this world. But Jesus put it this way, if they hated me, they're gonna hate you. If they persecuted me, they're gonna persecute you. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You probably didn't hang that verse on your refrigerator this morning to encourage your walk, I know. But Paul said it's a guarantee, and he said it to Timothy. So I, I believe the writer is, is trying to encourage this early church to hang on because their future is so bright. And I want you to apply it to yourself Whatever you may be going through, whatever the moment may throw your way, hang on because your future is bright. Now, there's much more here, but I think that's the first point. Now, one has testified, verse 6, somewhere, and it's not like the writer of Hebrews doesn't know where this is because he's about to quote it, and this is actually Psalm chapter 8. 
He says, what is man that thou rememberest him or the son of man that thou art concerned about him or that you care for him? In Psalm 8, David looked up at the stars. He began the psalm with these words, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've displayed your splendor in the heavens. And then he said famously these words. This is Psalm 8, 3 and 4. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? David looked up at the stars. He realized all God had done in his life and seeing how huge God is, seeing how big his universe is, seeing how powerful he is, David asked a logical question because I think when we all look up and we look through some of those telescopes and we see some of the pictures from the Hubble telescope and we see pictures from you know space back to the earth and we see what we live on, let alone the rest of the universe and the size of stars and the size of the sun and then other stars that astronomers talk about and what scientists call an expanding universe much of which we will probably never even begin to explore. What is man? Do you, do you ever look up and feel kind of small? Have you ever gone up to the mountains and, and seen the visible stars up there? And it's pretty overwhelming because we don't get that much here in our state, right? And, and you, you see the incredible majesty of what the Bible's talking about, about this God who knows every star and names them all. What is man? Why do you even think about man? Why do you care for him? I think that's a, a good question to ask. And the answer to that question is that man, mankind is made in God's image. The, the one being that God said he made in his image is mankind. As much as I love animals, especially dogs, because I've told you in the past, all dogs are Christians. You guys know that, right? I, I've told you cats are definitely in question. They, they tend to drift. I don't know what it is. But anyway, <laughs> but here's the point. You and I have been made in God's image. Now you might ask, well, what does that mean? It means that we have the ability to reason. But I think most of this has to do with our ability to connect with God and worship. And... God made man in his image and gave man dominion. That's verse seven. Thou hast made him for a little while lower than the angels. This is a quote actually from the Septuagint version. Thou hast crowned him, notice, mankind. Now we're gonna go from the lesser to the greater, from mankind to Christ, the ultimate man. But this is true of man nonetheless. Man has been crowned. God crowned him with glory and honor. That's why uh, some of you have heard scholars say that Adam and Eve were king and queen of the earth. They were given dominion. And if you go back and you read Genesis 1 and 2, you will see that. They're given dominion over everything. And even after the fall, man pretty much still has dominion over the earth. Of course, if you run into certain animals in certain contexts, like if you're up in the woods and you don't have a gun, you might be in trouble if a bear <laughs> comes at you. But you can see what's happened with man. Man has dominated the world. Man has dominion. And that is part of what God designed things to be. God designed Adam to care for things and to cultivate and keep 
what he had entrusted to him. That would include the garden, that would include the naming of animals, and that would include the bride that was given to Adam. But something happened. The usurper came into the garden, lied to our first parents. Adam was there, but he did not stand between the serpent and his wife. And of course, we fell. Our first parents fell. Sin came into the world, and we know the rest of the story. So man's unique relation to creation is that God crowned him with a very special place. It is a privilege to be human. I remember Dr. Walter Martin saying, I don't know if too many of us think about this, but it's a privilege to be human, to be made in the image of God. You could have been a fruit fly. (laughs) I suppose. (laughs) I don't know. Maybe you need to ponder that philosophically or otherwise, but... But to be human is a privilege. It is a blessing because we're made in the image of God. And as he continues, he says, Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. Now, in verse 8, as we see the quotation from Psalm chapter 8, and the writer continues and It's all uh, capitalized here in the New American Standard. But then the writer says, in subjecting all things to him, and the him is lowercase here, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. And as we move from the lesser to the greater, we're going to see that the psalmist is going to give us what we would call a double fulfillment or a double application. The psalm is written about man or mankind, generally speaking. But the ultimate man is Christ. He is the ultimate son of man. And he has been crowned with glory and honor. The question is, are all things subjected to him? And I think the writer says this to have the recipient of the letter say no to to anticipate an objection And he answers, he said, but now, end of eight, we do not, we now, but now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. Of course, all things will be subjected to Christ. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But it's not yet. And this is a very important point to just put in your pocket theologically. It's not very complicated. Our salvation is already, but not yet. What does that mean? That the price has been paid at Calvary's cross. Christ is resurrected. He is at the right hand of the Father. But he hasn't summed up the times yet. We haven't experienced the fullness of our redemption. The fullness of our redemption will be our actual resurrection, which will be in concert with the new heavens and new earth. I believe this is my position, and this could be a little bit debated, that when Christ returns and the resurrection and rapture occur, that the earth is also going to get its resurrection and its makeover. I believe that when he says, I'm gonna make all things new, that includes us. In fact, Romans 8 says that the creation personified is waiting for the revealing of the sons of God because it knows that when we get our makeover, it's going to get its makeover. And creation is pictured as groaning, just like we groan as we get older. I make 
sounds that my Uncle Frank used to make. And I play it up a little bit now, depending on what crowd is around. You know, ooh, ooh. Sometimes I'm just looking for sympathy. Sometimes I'm looking for someone to hand me the remote out of a sympathetic move. Uh, last night it was, can you hand me a cookie? In Jesus' name, you know, there's a blessing when you hand somebody a cookie and a cup of cold milk. In Jesus' name. You guys believe that? <laughs> anyway, I think you get extra points if you do it for a pastor. That's just my personal view. But <laughs> just kidding. Anyway. So there's an already not yet realization. Because the, the Hebrew believers are basically saying perhaps something like this. Well, we're going through all this stuff and there's a lot of talk about the finished work of Christ. It is finished, paid in full. Why are we suffering then? And some people may have come along, and this is pretty uh, healthy conjecture here. Some people may have come along and said, I told you there's no place for a suffering Messiah in the Old Testament. The, the, the Messiah doesn't suffer. This Christ that you've placed your faith in and now you have all these problems because you follow him. We tried to tell you the Old Testament makes no case for a suffering Messiah. He'll sit on David's throne. He'll rule and reign with a rod of iron. Yeah, but what about Isaiah 53? What about the fact that he would suffer and bear our burdens and be wounded for our transgressions? You can't ignore those passages. Yes, he will rule and reign at his second coming, but at his first coming, he had come to die. And he would not receive the crown without the cross. And the implication to the Hebrew believers is that you're going to have some crosses to face yourself. And of course, depending on what time you live in and where you live, it'll vary for every believer. So what do we see? Well, we do see him, verse 9, and we'll get some good news here. The NIV has, has it, we see Jesus, who's been made for a little while lower than the angels. He became human, so he shares our humanity. Namely, Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. You can hear a shout as maybe the listeners of this letter are hearing this for the first time and the writer says, or the, the reader of the letter says, but we see Jesus, amen? We see our triumphant Christ. We are to fix our eyes on Jesus. We'll see this in Hebrews 12, who's the author and perfecter of our faith. Don't lose heart. Fix your eyes or re-fix your eyes on Jesus. The first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam, Jesus Christ, became a life-giving spirit. He emptied himself, Philippians 2, 7 and 8, taking the form of a bondservant, being made like in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." To taste death does not simply mean to die, says one writer, but to experience death in its full horror and humiliation. It is a Hebrew metaphor that does not simply mean that Jesus sampled it or tasted it a little bit, but fully partook in what it means to die. Hold that thought. I want you to go over to the book of Romans and we'll come back 
to the book of Hebrews, Romans chapter 5, Jesus' death on the cross is called by scholars substitutionary, or you may have heard the vicarious uh, atonement of Christ Jesus. Vicarious means in the place of, or we're turning to Romans chapter 5. I was interviewing... Um, Scott Klusendorf earlier today, and we were talking a little bit about the abortion issue. And uh, the, the subject of forgiveness came up, and we were talking about the hope of the gospel and that we're not here to condemn people. We're here to hold out the hope of Christ. But people need to know the truth about this topic as well. And he said he had preached at a church service, and a young lady came up to him and said, I had an abortion in my past, and uh, I, I am, you know, I'm aware of some of the things that you said about Jesus and so forth, but I can't forgive myself. And Scott Klusendorf said, he said to this woman, well, the most important forgiveness you need is not from yourself. It's from God. Because you've sinned against God. Our sin, first and foremost, is vertical. The forgiveness that you need is from God. And so why don't you seek that forgiveness first and maybe forgiving yourself will follow. Amen? Sometimes we we get held up and I I understand it because we all have things from our past that, you know, maybe it's tough for us to get over or maybe we, we wonder, you know, is this even forgivable? And the truth is that it is. Here's Romans 5 verse 6. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Romans 5, 6, Christ died for who? The perfect? No, the ungodly, Romans 5, 7. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man, the good man, someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified. See that word justified? That's a Greek word that means to render as just just to announce as innocent or to declare righteous. Here's the implications of what Christ did for us. Not only are you a forgiven person tonight if you're in Christ, but you are declared righteous before the Father. You say, how is that possible? Shane was talking about how how many sins, you know, we've probably committed uh, in the last week. Let's not talk about the last year. Let's not talk about the, the times that we failed to do the right thing, the, the, our thought life that can be sinful, things we've muttered under our breath, and we think, well, that only counts as a half sin because I muttered it. I didn't actually articulate the syllables. That's like a half sin, right? No. Uh, you know, thoughts that I've, I've, I've thunk, uh, motives, uh, perspective, whatever it may be, and you start to clump all that together, and you're like, You know, first of all, I need so much forgiveness. And second of all, how could it be that I would be declared righteous before the Holy One who sits on the throne and runs the universe? And here's the truth. You are declared righteous, justified by his blood. By the death of Christ and through his resurrection, when you commit your life to Christ, God moves you from death to life. How does that happen? It happens because you are now in the Son. And God is crediting the righteousness of Jesus to your account. That's why his perfect life, sacrificial death, 
and triumphant resurrection are all part of the plan. That you might inherit the righteousness of Christ. And because this has happened, we shall be saved from what? From the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Turn to the book of Titus for a second. A little bit more of this good news. And I want you to see this idea of being declared righteous by the death of Christ. Because this little Hebrew church, Titus chapter 3 is what you want, is tempted to go back to the law. Tempted to go back to the sacrificial system. Tempted to go back to the blood of bulls and goats, which chapter 10 will tell us can never take away your sin. You go back to ritual. You go back to religion. You go back to good works and you got nothing. Because if you don't have Christ, you don't have his righteousness. And if you don't have his righteousness, then you're going to stand before God in all those sins. And then he's going to deal with you accordingly. Which would you prefer? I know the pressure's hard, says the writer. I know it's difficult to be a Christian right now. I know Rome is crazy and you're getting persecuted by, you know, Jewish friends and family that don't believe Jesus is the Messiah. But hold on. Because these are the truths of the gospel. Look at Titus 3, verse 4. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds, Titus 3, 5, which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that being, here's our word, justified, declared righteous by his grace, we might be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Amen? Amen. Co-heirs with Christ. All of this, turning to your right a little bit more, you'll get back to Hebrews. Done by God's plan through Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. And so the writer says in Hebrews 2.10, for it was fitting, it was Apropos, it was appropriate for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things. We saw that in chapter one, verse three. He's the creator. In bringing many sons, many sons and daughters to glory. This is the result of his atoning sacrifice in Hebrews 2, 9. To perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. Now the writer goes back to Hebrew and he says, it was fitting for God's plan to be this way. See the word fitting there? Do you remember when we studied Matthew 3 and Jesus goes up to John for baptism and John says, no, 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 you need to baptize me. Jesus says, permit it at this time for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then John said, yes. Matthew 3, 15. Same word, in Matthew 3.15 is in Hebrews 2.10. It was fitting, appropriate. This is the way that it had to be. For Christ, who is the creator, in order to bring many sons to glory, to bring many on the glory train, <laughs> to get many to punch their ticket to glory, it had to be this way. What had to happen? That Jesus Christ, in bringing many sons to glory, was uh, perfected or to perfect the author 
founder, ESV, pioneer, RSV, captain, KJV, leader, New English Bible, of their salvation through sufferings. Messiah's suffering was a stumbling block to many Jews in the first century and beyond, but prophesied. And Christ's sufferings are not something to stumble over or question, but rather to exalt in. Please hear this. Because it was fitting. This was God's plan. The God who made the universe and breathed out all the detail, all the variety, all the beauty, all the interaction. He did this same thing in the plan of salvation. In creation, he's meticulous and incredibly powerful. And the cross is another example of his glory. And in our salvation, this is what he has done. The Greek word for Jesus being the author of our salvation is archegos in Greek. It is one who initiates or originates a plan or a program for others to follow. Jesus is the pioneer. He's the pathfinder, if you like Nissans. He brings many sons to glory. The thought here is of supremacy and personal participation or originating. The thought, says one writer of this word, author of our salvation, is uh, the thought of originating. It's capsulized in the picture of a mountain climber who goes ahead of others, chipping away footholds, inserting pittens, and extending the rope to his partners. In, 18, uh, in 1804 to 1806, Captain George Clark and Captain Meriwether Lewis, Lewis and Clark, were sent by President Thomas Jefferson to find a way across the old trackless west from St. Louis to the Pacific coast. Such an exploration involved tremendous preparation, special provisions, and wise decisions. It was accomplished through great danger and many hardships. As the Lewis and Clark journals make clear, when the explorers returned, the whole American West lay open to development. This is the thought behind the word author or archegos. Jesus is our archegos, opening up completely a new spiritual country. He has made the way. There's an imaginary conversation between one of Bunyan's favorite authors, and it's something like this. Lord, why did you allow yourself to be treated that way so you could be in heaven? Why did you allow them to do those things to you so that you could make it to glory? This is what God has done through Jesus Christ. And so they need, these uh, readers, recipients need to see afresh that Jesus Christ has blazed the trail. He both is our savior and he is sympathetic because before he asked anybody to go through it, he went through it himself. And the writer will say later, you know, I know you're going through a tough time, but none of you have had to shed your blood and that's a good thing. So hold on to Jesus. Fix your eyes upon Jesus. For both he who sanctifies 11... And those who are sanctified are all from one father. Some scholars think that that's God the father. Some argue that's Adam as the founder of mankind or the original human. For which reason he is not ashamed to, ashamed to call them brethren. NIV might help us. But the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. Now, Jesus is the last Adam, and he became one of us, and he's not ashamed of us. 
He's not ashamed of his family. Sometimes, you know, you go to introduce a family member and, well, <laughs> you'd like to say that you're proud of every single family member in your family, but, you know, sometimes, well, <laughs> you know, you might go to a holiday gathering and you might disown a child who's misbehaving or you might say, no, no, that, that one doesn't belong to me. <laughs> or you might say, no, no, that's not my uncle or... Do you know that as fallible and as many foibles and imperfections as we all have, Jesus is not ashamed of you. Now hear the writer of Hebrews, so don't you be ashamed of him. Jesus doesn't move away from you at the Christmas gathering and say, no, <laughs> don't, know, don't know that one. No, he moves towards you. He blazed the trail. So don't you move away from him. Don't you be ashamed of the gospel because he's not ashamed of you in the presence of his father. In fact, he's your great advocate. Amen? In fact, we would argue that we could say these words would be put in Jesus' mouth. He declares you righteous before the father because he's your great advocate. So don't you move away from him. He, he was willing to bear the shame of the cross. He despised the shame, but he did it for the joy set before him. He did it for you. He did it for the glory of his Father. So don't be ashamed of him. Now, in verse 11, we have um, a quote, and let's see. In verse 11... Uh, we're getting to the quote in verse, actually in verse 12. So notice in verse 12, it says, saying, I will proclaim thy name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing thy praise. Now we're gonna have three quotes. The first one is from Psalm 22, 22. You all know that Psalm 22 is a messianic psalm, right? It's my God, my God, it opens. Why have you forsaken me? And it's all about really Jesus's thoughts and perhaps even his words from the cross. And to further emphasize the point, don't be ashamed of him, don't move away from him, don't drift. Christ is going to proclaim his brethren in the midst of the congregation. In the midst of the assembly, he will stand up for his people. He's already done it. He's already fight for your, he already fought the good fight for your soul. And he's pictured here in the great congregation, uh, perhaps fast forwarding to the war of the world to come and saying to his father, he is mine, she is mine, they are mine, he belongs to me. And the writer of Hebrews goes back and quotes a psalm that's definitely based in persecution in the death of Messiah. And again, quoting now from Isaiah 8, 17 and 18, which is also about a backdrop of persecution. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children of God, the children whom God has given me. When Jesus was enduring the cross, uh, he didn't despise, uh, he didn't pay back evil for evil, for evil but he um, rather entrusted himself to his father. One thing I want you to see uh, in verse 12, going back for a moment, I will proclaim thy name to my brethren, the name of, I believe, his father there. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing thy praise. Many scholars have taken this to mean that when we're up in heaven or when we are down here on the earth and the new, new, new earth and new heaven, 
um, Jesus Christ is going to sing in the midst of the congregation. Now, I love to hear Brother Bert's voice and some of you others have beautiful voices. And, you know, when the music, the instrumentation goes down a little bit and your voices rise, that's beautiful. But can you imagine Jesus's singing voice? Well, he's going to sing and he's going to sing the praise of God in the midst of the congregation. All these Old Testament quotations really have one main point the solidarity of Christ with his people. He is for you, not against you. He is with you. He will not forsake you. He will not leave you. Again, the emphasis, so don't walk away. I know times are hard, but hang on. Final verses. Since then, the children share in flesh and blood. They're human. He himself likewise also partook of the same. He became human that through death, Jesus might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all of their lives. R. Kent Hughes puts it this way. The fear of death was stalking the tiny storm-tossed church. In fact, it was causing a paralyzing fear such fear was immobilizing like a deadly cobra's stare upon its prey. And so you can see this early church, threat of persecution looming, maybe some people making threats uh, to the church or to the leaders of the church, and they were paralyzed by fear. But the writer of Hebrews says, don't be paralyzed by fear, even the fear of death, because death, verse 14, look at it, has been rendered powerless. The stinger of death is gone. It's been plucked from the bee, if you will. There's no more stinger. You know, the thing about bees when they fly up is you know that if something happens, they'll leave the stinger in you. But if a bee comes up and it got, it's got no stinger, then it's like one of those big green beetles that don't know where they're going. Have you run into those things lately? I know you're scared. A lot of people scream. Some of you men scream like little girls. They come by, yeah! But all you gotta do is slap the thing, and here's why. You can even fly it uh, as a kite if you want to. Here's why. It's got no bite. It's got no stinger. You and I have been delivered, verse 15, from the fear of death. Now, look, I, I said it earlier. None of us are excited about pain or anything like that or parting from loved ones. But here's what we know. 1 Corinthians 15 55 through 57 says, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. But that's been dealt with at the cross. The power of sin is the law, but Jesus fulfilled the law. So thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Brethren, death is now a doorway. It's not an end for me to live as Christ and to die is gain. Now, I'm not trying to rush it along. Like the pastor who looked out at the congregation and said, who wants to go to heaven? Raise your hand. And everybody raised their hand except a little boy sitting in the back. And he went up to him afterwards and he said, why didn't you raise your hand? He said, I want to go to heaven, but I thought you were taking people now. <laughs> I'd like to live a little, you know. Here's the thing. 
we all have the blessing of living a beautiful life. Uh, I mean, I, I look at my life sometimes and, you know, I have so many blessings to count. And, and I think for all of us, may, maybe this hope that we have, knowing what our future is, that death has been defanged, that we have a future in heaven, co-heirs with Christ, future uh, ruling and reigning on the new earth with him. Look, if God is for us, who can be against us? This is the beauty of the gospel. Christ has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Death has no more power over God's people because the devil was defeated at the cross. He had the power of death, but that power has been lifted from him. You could say the devil is toothless now. He can make a lot of noise, and I'm not underestimating his power, but he has no more power in the death category. Christ defeated principalities and powers at the cross and made an open spectacle of them, triumphing over them. Praise be to God, and his victory is ours. Thank you, Father, for the good news of the gospel, for the hope of this section of the book of Hebrews. Thank you, Jesus, for tasting death for me. Thank you that you blazed the trail, punched my ticket to glory. I'm on the glory train. Many sons and daughters are heading for glory. And it's all because you have made the way. You sealed our redemption at the cross through the resurrection. We're so grateful. We live with a lot of fears. Some of them are founded. Some of them probably a bit irrational, but uh, nonetheless, we face them, Lord. We're all fickle sometimes. We're all, we can be easily afraid. Would you give us confidence? Because perfect love casts out fear. Fear involves punishment. But if we've been perfected in love, we don't have to worry about that because our sin was paid for in full at the cross. We walk in victory. We sang it earlier. We've already won. And we're so grateful. So help us to keep that in mind when things get heavy and times get tough as believers. And I pray that you'll teach us to follow you all the days of our life, to be faithful to the one who is faithful to us. In Jesus' name, amen.